We are dealing with the story and the life of David, which has struck me this morning, David's life is our life. And that you and I, in many ways, are David. That we are living through, at least in picture form, what David lived through. There's so much that we can learn from him and, and how he lived and the things that he, he dealt with. David, is, as you may know, we've been studying and looking at this man after God's own heart. And currently, he's on the run. He's in a ten year period of time in his life where things are a mess. Things are not going well. He's in hiding. He's running. He's, his life is, is being called for by King Saul. But during that time, he's being changed and prepared and refined. And David will be king. And in the same way, you and I are being prepared to reign. And we're being prepared to rule. Oh, not, not alongside Jesus as if we could ever be as good as Him or as great. Not, not above Him by any means. But in His authority and in His kingdom, we are called to rule and reign as priests. Revelation chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 20 very specifically says that we are a kingdom of priests. That we will rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. Your life, my life right now, is preparation to reign with Jesus Christ and His great authority and His rule. And so we, like David, are going through struggles in life. And life itself can be a hassle, can be a difficulty. There are highs and lows. But as we walk these mountains, as David walked the mountains of Judea, so we walk the mountains of life and we learn and we grow and we are being prepared. And what we are being prepared for, John says in 1 John 3, has not yet been seen. But we do know that when we see Him, we will be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Awesome. Awesome thought. So we are like David. Father, the one aspect of David's character that we desire most to be like is people after your own heart. And we draw near to you this morning to request this even as we begin to recognize and understand that we may be bringing some struggle into our lives. That nobody becomes a person after your own heart, Father, without hardship. Without that which develops our faith and grows us to trust you, like David did. But we pray it anyway, Lord, because we don't want to be about ourselves. We don't want to be people of the flesh, carnally thinking our way through life. We, we want to live by the Spirit. We want to appraise all things spiritually. And be grown after the person of Jesus. We pray for just such a maturity, Father. And we ask that you take us another step this morning, even as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 23, actually. Look at the last verse of chapter 23, verse 29. Which reads, David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. Engedi means spring of the gazelle. In the crags and cliffs towering above the western shore of the massive Dead Sea, there is a great rock cleft, like an open mouth sideways running down the face of the dry desert mountains. Midway between the northern and southern ends of the Dead Sea is this location, this place that is called Engedi. It was called Engedi in David's day, it is called Engedi today. And it's a striking oasis in an otherwise barren stretch of Eretz Israel. A 
an amazing place, Engedi. It's one of my favorite stops on our tour when we go to Israel. If you're going to Israel next October, and we're going to get information out to you about that very soon. But if you happen to be planning to make that trip with us when we go, you'll see Engedi. You'll be able to stretch out there on, on a, a grassy plateau that looks up to Engedi, where last year we, we worshipped and we had Bible study. My plan this year, if it works out alright, is to actually go up into Engedi. We couldn't last time because they were having too much water coming down the mountain. It was dangerous to be up in there. Because in Engedi, this, this otherwise, like I said, dry and barren land, water just gushes down springs, 80 degree springs, gush out from under the limestone cliffs and provide life-giving water in this region. There are groves, and, and I, Daphne, you're remembering this. There are groves of palm trees and acacia trees there. There's shade in caves that are littered throughout in Gedi. In David's day, I read that there, there were even vineyards all around in Gedi. Which is quite amazing because in this region of Israel, it is what you would expect. When you think of Israel, a lot of people think desert. Well, you're right in this region. It is a rough, austere, rocky land. You stand on top of Masada, you can look down at the Dead Sea. And this is a little bit further south than Engedi, but the same region, same area there. And if you look at the Dead Sea, that, that salt sea where the water pours in, but no life comes out. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. 33% salt and minerals. It would kill you if you drank it. You swim in it, and that's a lot of fun. But as you look at it, it's just hot and dry, and it just makes you thirsty. And in the middle of that is Engedi. This amazing oasis. A great place to hide away in the, from the heat of the day and the dry dust of the desert. But the significance of Engedi is not measured in gallons of water. It's not measured in the number of palm or acacia trees or even the depth of the caves, nor does its value lie in the fact that David hid there. And that's wonderful, by the way. It's one of the joys of going to Israel is seeing these places and saying, David was here. Wow. But that's not the significance of Engedi. No, the worth of Engedi is this. It's precisely the place where David took his most magnificent stand against the anger and hatred of Saul. For here at Engedi, David, I believe, makes the, the, the biggest representation of a man after God's own heart. I think more than any other time in his entire life, what we're going to read this morning is David at his absolute best. David standing up and acting like Jesus in an amazing way. And in Getty is the perfect place for it to happen. Let's read the story. 1 Samuel chapter 24 verse 1. It tells us when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. You may recall David had 600. 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Now you know I've got to pause right there. <laughs> Only the Bible would be so honest in the telling of this story. And in case you were wondering what relieve himself means, you were right. It means exactly what you think it means. The word relieve there is sakak regel in Hebrew. It literally means to cover his feet. It's a euphemism for going to the bathroom. Because in that day when you went and you squatted down, you would cover your robes would cover your feet. This is what Saul is doing. He's on a potty break. 
Now I know if I started making puns about this, some of you might get a little flushed, so I'm just going to move on. <laughs> I really struggle with this. I'm like, okay, how many jokes can I make about this and not get too crude? And then I read the text again and I went, but, but it is crude. They didn't have to tell us what Saul's doing. Why he goes in there. You could call Saul the first, first uh, party pooper in the Bible if you wanted to. Not saying you should. But here he is. And I want you to just get a picture of this scene. Saul is in there doing what Saul is doing. And so are David and all of his men. They're in that cave. They see Saul come in. They're close by watching this thing take place and just going, (laughs) this is not even possible. Of all the caves in the region, Saul chooses the one to do his business that David happens to be in. And David's men would say, what a great opportunity to waste Saul. Again, no pun intended. Verse verse 4 goes on. Some of you at lunch will go, oh, that wasn't good. It tells us then, listen to this, verse 4. The men of David said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you. Behold, I'm going to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. This is great, Dave. This is the chance we've been waiting for. You can kill Saul right now. He's vulnerable. He's not going to be able to defend himself. Go up and slit his throat, man. Take him out. Interesting, because David penned the following lines, probably about Saul in this very moment, and I want you to listen. Again, the Bible is graphic. Psalm 7, verse 15. David writes, He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, which is what Saul would have had to do to do what he was going to do. Okay? He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. Dave writes, His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate or scalp. What is David saying? (laughs) Now, this is a little on the crude side, but you need to understand that this this is biblical teaching. David is saying, in essence, if you're going to dump on someone else's life, it's going to come back on your own head. And I know that's gross, but it should be. Because if you're going to mess with someone else, if you're going to go after somebody else the way Saul is going after David, it's coming back on you. Whatever you throw out at other people, it's coming back around. His mischief will return upon his own head. Well, David arose, it tells us in verse 4, and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. Why does he do it? Now, he could kill Saul right there in that moment. Why does he cut off the edge of his robe? And you might think, oh, I I get it. He cuts him down to make a point, right? He's cutting down Saul. This is like youthful mischief, right? No, it's not. It is much more than that. It's even more than leaving a sign of evidence that David was there and could have killed Saul. What David is doing is he cuts off the hem, the edge of Saul's robe, as he is challenging Saul's authority. Keep your finger there in 1 Samuel 24 and go back to Numbers 15. Numbers chapter 15. Beginning in verse 37. Numbers 15, 37. Where the Lord spoke to Moses... And he said the following, verse 38, Speak to the sons of Israel, and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels 
on the corners of their garments and throughout their generations, but they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. God is giving the Israelites a mnemonic device. It's a mnemonic device. It's something to help them remember. Something to bring to mind what it is that God did, who they were. He says, I want you to take on the four corners of your clothing, I want you to make tassels and attach cords to them. And dip the cords in blue. Let them be dyed blue so that every time you look down and you see the fringe and you see those tassels, you will remember. You'll remember what? You'll remember your heavenly citizenship. For the color blue is a picture of heaven in the Bible. It's an interesting study just to track through, in fact, different colors in the Bible and what they indicate and what they show us. Blue throughout scriptures tends to show us pictures of heaven. It's connected to heaven. Even as you read about the tabernacle and the blue that's used in the curtains in the tabernacle or different things, the, the high priest in his robes, as you look at these things, it points us to heaven. And this color blue would be a reminder that they are a heavenly people. They are a heavenly citizenry. Now, quickly, this blue on these tassels came from a blue dye that was only made from sea snails that came out of the Mediterranean Sea. Heather was talking about, you know, little hermit crabs. Well, sea snails make this blue dye, but it would take, I'm told, 12,000 sea snails to produce a thimble full of this blue dye. This is expensive, expensive stuff. So important was it to the Lord that the people remember their heavenly citizenry. Today in Israel, it's come back, the idea of blue tassels on the robes. In fact, if you were to buy a prayer shawl there, it would have, most likely, blue tassels. And it's all because of going back to Numbers 15 and the commandment to do this. Of course, part of the problem today, and even in Jesus' day, is that symbols can too easily become a source of self-righteousness. And for the Pharisees, the tassels that were on their clothing were a symbol of their wealth and greatness and righteousness before the Lord. And Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 5, They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. Because that blue dye was so expensive, the idea of lengthening those tassels, making them bigger, costing more money, it was a sign of wealth. And the Pharisees would wear that wealth as their righteousness because the Jews believed at that time that if you were wealthy, you were righteous. God blesses the righteous. It was the prosperity gospel way back then. It's not a new phenomenon. This idea that everybody in the Lord is supposed to prosper, and by the way, it's bogus. Because if everybody in the Lord is supposed to prosper, I'm wondering why Jesus didn't. Why he was a homeless man. Why he never owned a home. He never owned a camel. He never he walked where he went. He slept out under the stars. Our very Lord himself. No, riches does not indicate righteousness. doesn't mean that you can't be wealthy and be righteous, or you can't be poor and be righteous, but it has nothing to do with righteousness. Wealth does not validate worth. Man, I wish we could understand that in America. Wealth does not validate worth. Well, that color blue, it reminded them of their heavenly citizenship, but it also reminded them to keep the commandments, for these fringes were supposed to point them to the commandments, as the Lord declared in Numbers 15. And in fact, over time, the Israelites would take these fringes and they would tie 613 knots in the fringes all the way around their cloaks. 
613, the number of the commandments. They would take and tie in, and I think they took the phrase, thou shalt not, <laughs> a little too seriously. It's not what he was talking about. <laughs> All this to say that the hem of the garment was very significant in Israel. For David to come up to Saul's garment and cut the hem off, to cut just a little bit, he was saying something. The hymn spoke of authority. The hymn spoke of power. It spoke of position. And by the way, you students of prophecy, check this out. Revelation 19.16 tells us this about Jesus' second coming. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There have been pictures painted of Jesus' triumphant return as he comes back in. And a bare thigh with King of Kings and Lord of the Lords tattooed on his thigh. It's not talking about a tattoo. It's talking about a tassel. It's talking about the fringes of the robe that will indicate and show the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because the hymn in Israel signified the authority of the person. Why is it that the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, she had a hemorrhage, when she went to touch Jesus, she thought, if I can just touch the hem of His robe, I'll be healed. Because she recognized there was authority with this man Jesus. And authority was sown in to the hymn. That happened in Matthew chapter 9. Now back to our story. So David, he cuts off the hymn of Saul's robe. And what's he saying? He's saying, <laughs> I'm the rightful king. You're not. I am challenging your authority, Saul. I'm taking part of your robe. And I'm saying, this is mine to wear. You might say, well, Rick, I think you're reading too much into this. Read on, verse 5. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Why would his conscience bother him just by playing a trick? Verse 6. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David's conscience is bothering him. And he realizes, okay, I know I've been anointed and I know I'm supposed to be king. But Saul is still in the position. And Saul was also anointed to be king. You might say, well, hang on. David was anointed too. David was anointed to be king. I mean, rightfully, he should be king. And didn't the Lord take his Holy Spirit away from Saul and give it to David? Yes, he did. So so what's the problem here? I think David maybe understands something that we need to get in our lives. And it's simply this, that God anoints the instruments of his will. God didn't just anoint people. He didn't just call on priests and and kings to be anointed. He also anointed instruments in the tabernacle. The furniture of the tabernacle would be anointed for service. Even the cups and bowls and spoons and dishes were anointed for use in the tabernacle because God anoints the instruments of His will. What are you saying? I'm suggesting that Saul is still an anointed instrument of the Lord's. For who? For David. Saul is the Lord's instrument to work in David's life. Wait a minute. Saul who's out to kill David? Yes. Saul who's chasing David down? Yes. Saul who makes David sleep, not sleep well at night because he's on his tail? Yes. Saul is the anointed instrument of the Lord. He is the instrument God is using in this period of David's life to refine him, to purify him, to change him. Let me ask you a question. Who irritates you? <laughs> Who annoys you? Who just gets under your skin? 
Who would you just rather would move away? Who at work are you, you, you can't wait until they resign to take another job? Who in your church fellowship do you wish would just find another church already? Who is it that annoys you? Gang, the Lord uses anointed instruments, and I like to call them the annoying anointed. And that's what Saul is. He is the annoying anointed. He's the annoyance of David's life, but he's anointed to do so. He's anointed to be there, and it's constantly forcing David back to the Lord, back on his knees, back to worship, because this guy won't leave him alone. Now we sing the song, Refiner's Fire. We sing, Purify My Heart. We sing, Refiner's Fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. Really. Is it? Sometimes my heart's one desire is to drive a UPS truck and be left alone. Not be holy. And if you drive for UPS, God bless you. That's my fantasy job right there. Nothing but me and boxes. You guys okay back there? You know? But if my desire is refinement and purification and sanctification to be the Lord's anointed myself, I've got to understand He's going to use the anointing anointed to work on me. He is going to keep people in my life that are difficult to deal with so that I will grow in the kind of love that He has. You see, when God looks at us, He doesn't, he doesn't look at less and go, Oh, less. Well, He does look at less and say, Oh, less, my son, I love you. But then he doesn't look over at someone else. I'm not going to pick anybody. Okay, Billy. (laughs) He doesn't look at Billy and go... (sighs) He sees every one of us as beloved sons and daughters. Even people that bug you like nobody's business. People that annoy you. People you look at and go, Oh, boy, I hope that person's not going to be in heaven. Oh, man, be careful. Because God's going to have you rooming with them. (laughs) The annoying anointed. There are people like this in all of our lives. And these people, praise God for them because He's using them to make you more a person after God's own heart. David said in Psalm 13, 4, My enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries, I will rejoice. They'll rejoice when I am shaken. And Heather just shared a few minutes ago that there are times when it looks like I'm guilty or someone may proclaim that I'm guilty and I'm innocent. And I know it, but nobody else does. What do I do? The Lord knows. And David writes and says, My enemy will say I've overcome him. My adversaries will rejoice when I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. No matter how much someone may rail on me, I know what God thinks about me. But I also know what God thinks about them. And he loves them. While we will spend our lives, what we tend to do is cut on people. Try to cut them down, undermine them. Make them feel like idiots, you know, so that we can feel a little bit better. Or, or in relationships, we'll just cut them off. I don't have anything to do with you anymore. Because you just bum me out. Or in churches, we'll push them out the door. And I've seen it far too much. In ministry over the years, someone who's just annoying in the church finally is just asked to leave because we're tired of dealing with you. And the reality is, God would say, I have them there for a purpose. 
And part of that purpose is to change you as much as I'm working on changing them. We find ourselves falling headlong once more into agape love. Is it possible to love the annoying anointed? Is it possible truly to look at someone who bugs you and realize they're an instrument of the Lord to make you more like Jesus? If we could do that, we would be a changed people. Well, going on in the story, verse 7, David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. David persuaded his men. The the phrase persuaded there, some of your Bible margins tell you what that literally is is, uh, defined as. It's tore apart. David tore apart his men. In other words, while Saul's over here in this corner doing his business, David and his men are over here arguing. No, I'm not going to kill him. And David tears his men apart. In other words, he is passionate. He is angry that they would even suggest that he kill Saul. No way am I going to do this to the Lord's anointed. You can forget it. I can't even believe you're asking. And Saul's still over here doing his thing. Which makes me wonder how he could possibly not have heard them. I'll let you think about that. Verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. Big embarrassing moment for Saul. They were in there. (laughs) And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. That means he landed flat out on his face, arms spread out, face down on the ground. It was the position, by the way, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prostrated himself before his enemy. Jesus fell prostrate before the Father. David is laying face down. And he says, Why do you listen to the words of men? Saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or or rebellion in my hand. I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. David had every right to have his hand against Saul. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of wickedness comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Man after God's own heart. Indeed, Paul writes in Romans 12:18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What Paul doesn't say is unless they are against you, unless they're after you. He doesn't say anything about the people you are supposed to be at peace with. He says as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You may still have people coming after you. You still may have people hating you. People bitter toward you. People angry at you. Doesn't matter. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Now, I like the burning coals part. <laughs> But Paul is saying, no, you don't get it. Care for, love, have compassion toward that annoying anointed in your life. 
Do not be overcome by evil, Paul writes, but overcome evil with good. And I'll tell you, it's a liberating way to live. Because when you have it in for someone else, or you're holding an anger, or harboring unforgiveness toward another person, it's a burden for you. But if you are giving love and compassion, regardless of what's coming back at you, you're free. They can do nothing to you because it's up to the Lord to come between you and them. By the way, I don't know if you saw this in the news this last week. President Bush welcomed Al Gore to the White House. Did you see that? Interesting. Interesting to see that photo op and to see these two men standing side by side and to realize, and again, I know I talk about some of these things, I walk a fine line here, but Al Gore, as recently as last week, was venomously spewing things about President Bush like he's a liar. He's an outright liar. And then this week, they're all standing side by side, all smiles, and I think, who won? George Bush, whatever you think about him or his policies, has never lashed out at Al Gore. And at least in this certain instance, I look at these two men standing there and I went, wow. I have respect for the one, not so much for the other. And that's what we're talking about here. Who comes out the winner? In our story, David is the winner. Because David chooses to love Saul in spite of Saul's attitude to David. In spite of what Saul has done, David does not respond in kind. He leaves judgment in the hands of God and he is free to love. And that's the idea. David has the faith to forgive. Watch this, verse 14. After whom is the king of Israel come out, David says? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? (laughs) A single flea? David's saying, I'm insignificant, Saul. I'm harmless. You're spending all this time pursuing me and the Philistines are infiltrating the land. I am not a threat to you. Verse 15, The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Watch the effect. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? Back in verse 11, David had called him my father. And now Saul calls David his son. And this is an emotional, dramatic moment for these two. There is still a love there. It's twisted in Saul's mind. But there is still a love, a father-son relationship. Verse 16 says, Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me. That the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? Oh, may the Lord therefore reward you with good in turn for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, Saul's words, Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Indeed, it wasn't established, by the way, in Saul's hand. There was a lot of skirmishes and fighting, but Israel didn't reach its peak of strength under the kingship of Saul. It was under David who finally drove the enemies out, who finally established Israel as a nation to be counted. It was under Solomon that Israel would have its its vast, largest reach of land. The greatest riches and absolute peace under Solomon, David's son, but not under Saul. No, the kingdom of Israel will be established in David's hand. Verse 21, So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home. 
But David and his men went up to the stronghold. In this story, David shows us the greatest kind of faith a person can show. And it's the faith to forgive. As a matter of fact, I'll go out a little further in this game. You cannot say that you have faith in Jesus Christ and not have a heart that forgives. Because forgiveness is bound up in faith. How so? It takes trusting God to be able to forgive someone else. Knowing that God will take care of any problems. Knowing that the Lord will judge. Knowing that God will handle anything that comes out of it. It's His business, not mine. I am not the judge. I am a person called to love. And the rest is left up to the Father. I believe nothing shows the heart of the Father more than forgiveness. Nothing reveals a higher level of faith than true forgiveness. And when the annoying anointed come my way, when those people who just bug or, or rip into my life, or even worse, people who would abuse or terrify you, what would Jesus do with that? It is not my place to deal in judgment, but in forgiveness. Turn your Bibles over to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. Verse 1, Jesus is doing a little training, a little apostolic training with his boys. Verse 1, he says to his disciples of Luke 17, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. So just because someone's the annoying anointed, someone's being used by the Lord to create change in your life, doesn't mean that they are free from judgment. Just be aware of that if you happen to be the annoying anointed yourself. Okay? Verse 2, Jesus said it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Jesus taught this over and over. What did the apostles say in response to this? They said, increase our faith they don't say increase our ability to forgive they say increase our faith because increased faith is increased forgiveness the more I believe in the Father the stronger my faith in the Lord the greater my capacity to forgive any and everyone when we pray Lord increase our faith that's what we're praying Lord teach us to forgive teach us like Jesus to be in that place of absolute brutality to stretch out our arms in the midst of our crucifixion and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You notice Jesus didn't wait until after his resurrection when his wounds were healed and the pain had stopped to forgive. He didn't forgive beforehand not knowing exactly how painful it would be. He forgave in the middle of the pain. In the midst of the sorrow. When life for him was at its absolute worst for all eternity, that's when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It would radically alter our lives if we could pray that prayer, if we could say that over and over again and again. Getting the focal point of Jesus' entire earthly ministry. Understand this, it was not healing. He didn't come to heal. It wasn't miracles. He didn't come to perform the miraculous. It wasn't the supernatural. It wasn't signs and wonders. And these are all good things. These are all useful by the Lord in the world to draw people to Jesus. But the sole purpose of Jesus' ministry on earth more than anything else was forgiveness. You want to be like Jesus? 
pursue forgiveness first and foremost. You want to be a person after God's own heart? It is all about forgiveness. Now one last thing, and listen to this. David called Saul God's anointed, even though himself, he was the anointed one to be king next. And you Bible students know that Jesus was not just one of the anointed of God, but Jesus was called the anointed. Mashiach in the Hebrew, Messiah, means anointed one. Christos in the Greek, Christ, means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. And take note of this verse. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. God the Father is talking to God the Son, which I think is really cool. And it says, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Don't miss that. God the Father just said to God the Son that He is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, now the Lord the Father points the Godness back on Himself. It's awesome. Jesus, God, the scepter is yours. Now, God, me, I have this to say. And he goes on and says, I have anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you want to hear something absolutely amazing? Jesus Christ, who was once called by Isaiah a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Jesus Christ is the gladdest man to ever walk the face of the earth. Nobody had a greater joy than Jesus. The Hebrew writer says later, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, while he sorrowed over the sin and sickness of man, had the gladdest heart of anyone in all eternity. Why is that? Because forgiveness brings the oil of gladness. Because if we are able to forgive as he forgave, we will be happy. And we will experience holiness, which is happiness. Holiness and happiness, same thing. Being set apart as instruments of the Lord. And I wonder what would happen if we were to live out every relationship in the way David did with Saul. Or better yet, the way the son of David did or does with us. In forgiveness. In love. In compassion. I said as we began today that in Gedi is the perfect place for David's act of forgiveness to, to occur. And it really is. Because if you consider En Gedi, in that dry, rocky, barren land, there is an oasis. And out of the rock, waters gush and feed that land and grow the trees and would grow the vineyards of David's day. In the same way, we, like En Gedi, if we can learn to forgive, are more oasis than we are desert. More springs of living water than we are rocky crags. We will be anointed with the oil of gladness above our companions. Which, by the way, would draw our companions to the person of Jesus Christ. If we could learn to forgive like David did. Let's bow together. Father, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us, Lord, for our ignorance. Forgive us for the times that we are annoying to other people. Much more so, Father, forgive us when we hurt other people. Forgive us, Lord, when we do damage in other people's lives. And we pray, Father, that, that this morning we would not go out of here with a radar up against those who annoy us, trying to be righteous as we say, oh, we forgive them. Father, would you begin with us 
Show us in our own lives the problems we cause others and forgive us and change us. And Lord Jesus, use anybody that you need to to show us how to love like you love us. In Jesus' name.